If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me please to the book of John, John's Gospel and chapter 6. We're going to look this morning at some words the Lord Jesus said shortly after that mighty miracle we just talked to the children about, the feeding of the 5,000. My children's talk was from Matthew, but it could have easily been taken from John 6 as well. The events are recorded in this chapter as well. But John chapter 6, and we're reading verse 37 to 40. John chapter 6, verse 37, and the Saviour said, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. And I will raise him up at the last day. Praise God. Please keep your Bibles open there. Uh, I'm sure all of us have heard of the famous pyramids in Egypt, the the Great Pyramid uh, at Gaza especially, and uh, the the famous stories connected with these pyramids. But I wonder how many people realise that pyramids are not unique to Egypt. In fact, if you go to Ur of the Chaldees, which is where Abraham was from, up in the land of uh, Babylon, or as it is today in the land of Iraq, you'll see the remains of the great pyramid, the great ziggurat of Ur, which is where they used to worship different pagan deities. And Abraham would have almost certainly seen that in his day. If you go to Namibia, uh, there are pyramids in Namibia, in Africa. And uh, lots of people uh, are unaware that those pyramids even exist. And then you have the Great Sun Pyramid in Mexico, uh, a massive pyramid that is a a very famous sightseeing attraction. But lots of people don't know about the biggest pyramid of all, the Great Pyramid at a place called Cholula in Mexico. Now you're looking at that and saying, John, am I missing something? Because I can't see a pyramid. And that's the secret. That's the reason why. You see, it's called the Hidden Pyramid. Because when they built it, they built it with clay. And that allowed grass and things to grow over it. And it hid it over time. This pyramid was actually a massive, massive structure. It is a massive structure. It's, it's uh, been discovered, but most of it hasn't been archaeologically excavated. It was built in about the third century before Christ, and it was still being used uh, uh, hundreds of years after Christ. And uh, it was a massive, massive temple structure. 
Uh, it was about nine Olympic swimming pools long and 1.3 swimming pools tall. And if you compare it to the Great Pyramid of Giza, which lots of people think is the biggest pyramid, it far, far is uh, much, much bigger, far outsizes it in, in mass, not in height, but uh, in the area around it. It is a huge pyramid. And it's called the Hidden Pyramid because, uh, as I say, it got covered over with grass. And so much so was it hidden that in the 1500s, when Cortes invaded Mexico, he never knew it was there. And uh, they, the Roman Catholics among the Spaniards, they ended up building a church on top, not even knowing that it was there. Isn't that astounding? But you know what? I want to tell you about something today which is equally astounding. Because I want to tell you about a doctrine which is bigger than the Great Pyramid. And the Church of Jesus Christ, the true church, is built upon it. But most people don't even know it's there. What am I talking about? Something I referred to in my last sermon on a Sunday morning. The Covenant of grace and the covenant of grace are sometimes called the covenant of redemption or the eternal covenant is a covenant that was made before any covenants were made on earth between the members of the trinity you know christians believe our god is a triune god father son and holy spirit and the members of the godhead planned in eternity past the salvation of God's people. Uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of the great preachers, some say he's the last great British preacher we've had uh, in, in modern era. He said this in his commentary on Ephesians. I'm sorry, I had to put my glasses on for the re- read this one. It says, before the foundation of the world, God saw what would happen to man. He saw the fall and man's sin, which would have to be dealt with. And there the plan was made. And an agreement was made between the Father and the Son. And this, this great doctrine is, uh, is revealed throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. Let me give you a few Bible verses to help substantiate what we're talking about. In Isaiah 42 verse 6, we have a prophetic passage where God the Father is talking to God the Son. And he says, I the Lord, that's God the Father, have called you, that's God the Son, to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. And then he goes on, talks about the works of Christ, uh, healing the blind and so on. And Isaiah said specifically, God had called Christ to be a covenant for the people. Not just to make the new covenant, which is what he did before going to the cross. That's something different. But he himself, with the Father, had a covenant. In fact, the reason he came was because of the covenant. Isaiah 48, verse 16, says, And now the Lord God and his Spirit have sent me. You know, that's an amazing verse to show your Jehovah's Witness friends. Because you've got the whole Trinity there, and God the Father and God the Holy Spirit sent the Lord Jesus into the world. It can be translated as well, the Father sent the Son and the Spirit. But I, I think that is the right one, uh, right way of interpreting it. But both are true, and uh, that's evidence of that plan being worked out. If you look in the book of Ephesians, in chapter 1, and verse 9, the Apostle Paul talked about it when he said that he, that's God, made known to us, that's the Apostles, the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he 
purposed in Christ. Some translations say he purposed in himself. So God had purposed in himself, purposed and made a plan in himself, the mystery of his will for the salvation of people who would become the church of Jesus Christ. And uh, Hebrews 13.20 talks about the blood of the eternal covenant. Unlike the temporary covenants, that, like the Mosaic covenant, which is past, or uh, the other covenants like uh, uh, the covenant of, uh, with Abraham, uh, so on. You know, those covenants had a temporary span during the duration of earth. But this covenant is an eternal covenant, made in eternity past and dealing with eternity future. So lots of different verses there showing us, and there's others, the covenant of grace that was made in the Trinity before uh, anything ever happened in terms of the gospel being worked out on earth. Before God ever said in the Garden of Eden, let us make man in our image, which was a covenant of plan, an agreement between the members of the Godhead, he said, let's come to this plan of salvation for the people. And we have a beautiful little picture in the Old Testament. Warren Wisby once said that for every major doctrine, you can find an Old Testament story that is an illustration or a picture of it. And there's a beautiful one in the story of Noah, which happens to be a coincidence because the children are doing uh, Noah this morning as well. And in Genesis chapter 6, when God warned Noah that he was going to flood the world, he said this, but I will establish my covenant with you. And you will enter the ark, you and your sons, and your wife and your son's wife. You see, God made a covenant with Noah there to be the the person who would save humanity from being wiped out. And his people would come into the ark and be saved. And God's covenant was with Noah. And it was because of what he was going to do in building the ark that those people would be saved. And so that's a a beautiful picture of the Lord Jesus, God's covenant with the Lord Jesus and his work of salvation, which would bring us to safety as well. So what an amazing thing this covenant is. And I want us to have a look at this today because although it's not, the word covenant isn't used in in these phrases here in John chapter 6, the whole thing is based on covenant truth and it is uh, implicit in the text rather than explicit but it is definitely there and you will see it as we go through and in John chapter 6 we see three things we see the assurance that Christ was given we see the agreement that he made with the father and we see the appeal he makes to the lost and uh, this is Christ's part in the covenant of grace and we could talk about the other members of the trinity and their parts as well and in fact if you look at other bible passages you will see it ephesians chapter one is a wonderful passage because that deals with each part of the trinity in in father's part son's part and the spirit's part uh, in the first chapter and other places as well but we're looking today at these words and they deal with christ's part in the covenant of grace and I believe as we look at this we will be blessed you know Psalm 25 verse 14 says the Lord confides in those who fear him he makes his covenant known to them may he make his covenant known to us today as well and the first thing I want to draw your attention to is Christ's assurance uh, in the covenant 
And he says this in verse 37. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. I don't know if you know this. I bought a, a little children's book to do with space recently. And it was full of sort of amazing facts and things like this. And I thought maybe I can uh, uh, get some children's talks out of it. And one of the things that astounded me, I never knew this. Maybe all of you do. But apparently in, in space, astronauts have to be incredibly careful doing repair work with metal objects. Because something fascinating happens to metal in space. Because metal on Earth has a film around it or dust on it uh, because of the Earth's atmosphere, in space there isn't that, uh, that feature. And so when metal is put next to metal, the, the atoms merge together and the metals become one. So if, a, if a, 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 an astronaut was to put down his metal spanner on top of the metal spaceship, that would be it. The two would join together. Isn't that a fascinating thing? I never knew that. Uh, you don't get any extra uh, expense for that little, little gem of trivial knowledge. But that's fascinating thing. All those atoms, when they're put together, they, they're drawn to each other. And this is what the Lord Jesus Christ says is going to happen to his people and himself. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And this was Christ's assurance to himself, God's assurance to Christ, that the people would come to him. Now, I want you to know, uh, he talks about all the people, all that the Father gives me will come to me. The word all there is a word that, that means a whole body, a whole body. And all means everyone, none missing. Isn't that a wonderful truth? You know, it's not like most of them will come to me. So one, a few will, few will be lost. But he says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. That's an amazing revelation. And he says, not that all will come to me, but all that the Father gives me will come to me. And here we enter into the mystery of that covenant agreement between God the Father and God the Son. That God the Father agreed to give his son, a people, if, they, if he would go and die on the cross for them to be their saviour. This is amazing. I, I believe this is revealed earlier on in the book of Isaiah in chapter 53, where in that great chapter, uh, one of the servant songs which predicts and prophesies the, the, the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, we read these words. It says in Isaiah 53 verse 10. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering. He will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. So you see, there we're told that the suffering servant of God will have his own offspring, and he will suffer for many and uh, bear their sin. And that a people was given to the Lord Jesus Christ in a promise from God the Father to God the Son. This is, of course, where we enter the, the great doctrine of predestination and God's election, that he has chosen out of all of humanity a people to be the offspring of his son. And 
all those people will come to him. You know, this is a fascinating thing, and, and there's many illustrations of it in Scripture. One of the ones that uh, shocked me recently was in the book of Isaiah. You know, Isaiah uh, was one of the uh, fathers, the great fathers of the Bible. And in Isaiah chapter 7 and 8, we read about Isaiah's children, and he had a number of children. It wasn't so good on the naming. Uh, he called one of his kids Mahashalal Hashbaz. Imagine <laughs> what, going to school with that name tag. You know, it would be a, a punishment guaranteed but uh, that was a god-given name of course but he had all those children and in isaiah chapter 8 he says here am i and the children god has given me it's a beautiful picture of our lord jesus christ and i can say that with absolute authority that no one in this room can argue about because in hebrews chapter 2 the writers of the hebrews takes that and takes those words that are given about isaiah And applies them to Christ. As Christ stands before God. He says here am I. And the children you have given me. And that's what one day God will do. He will present many sons to glory. As it says in Hebrews 2. And he will stand there with his people. Who God has given to him. And that was a great assurance that Christ had. All that the Father gives me will come to me. They'll be drawn to me. Uh, Now their own need of a saviour will drive them. But it will be the drawing power of God that will draw them to me. And they will put their trust in me. And uh, I want you to know that that doesn't in any way dissolve uh, human responsibility because the next part of the verse goes on to say in verse 37, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. You see, all that the Father gives have to still come. And if you're sitting here today thinking, well, how can anyone know whether they're one of the number that God has given or not? You come. You come. That's how you'll know. You come and put your trust in Christ. All that the Father has given me will come to me. And the comfort is for us that whoever comes to him, he will never drive away. Christ's assurance becomes our assurance that he will never drive away those who come to him. Now, there's plenty of Old Testament stories that illustrate this for us. If you think about uh, back in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, what did God have to do? He had to put an angel with a flaming sword to stop them coming back in to the Garden. And Genesis 3.24 says that they were driven from the Garden of Eden. God drove them away so that they wouldn't take of the fruit of the tree of life and seal their doom for eternity uh, without any hope of salvation. They'd taken the fruit of the tree of knowledge, but if they had sealed it with the tree of life, there wouldn't have been uh, any salvation because they would have been sealed in that situation. So God drove them away. But Jesus says, you come to me, I'll never drive you away. You know, the Pharisees at Jesus' time, at this time when he was preaching, were driving people out of the synagogue if they believed in Jesus. We read in John chapter 9 about the, uh, the, the blind man who Jesus healed at the, pool of Beth, uh, at the pool of Siloam. And when he confessed Christ, they threw him out of the synagogue. Jesus said, I'll never do that to you. You come to me, I will never drive you away. The leper was cast out of the camp in Leviticus chapter 13. But the sinner is never cast out of Christ's camp. 
he can come to Christ and be received. And even like the uh, city of refuge in Numbers chapter 20, uh, sorry, yes, Numbers chapter 20, I think it is, uh, the, um, the person fleeing uh, from the avenger of death can go to the city of refuge and find safety there and not be turned away. That's how Christ receives sinners. He says, whoever comes to me will never turn, I will never drive away. And the Greek there is an emphatic, no, never, no, never. I'll never turn them away. Not at the beginning and not at the end. I will keep them, never drive them away, ever. This is a wonderful assurance for the Lord Jesus Christ and for us that he will have a people who will come to him. I've got to say, I find tremendous comfort and blessing in this verse. When I think of the challenges we're facing in the work of the gospel, this is a great encouragement. Uh, our, our sister Julie gave me a, a new sheet, uh, a prayer diary for a, a local evangelist with counties by the name of Jonathan Brain. And Jonathan goes into the schools and he does assemblies and teaches Christians, uh, Christianity in the schools. And in his newsletter, this is, I think, in the Chippenham area, and uh, he said this, One strange encouragement from a while back was taken aside by a head teacher and a couple of other teachers and being asked to dumb things down a bit. He was asked to dumb things down a bit. Now, he's saying that's an encouragement to me because he's obviously getting across with power. But he said that the teacher said to him, we all know it's not true and your assemblies come across like it is. So he said, dumb it down because you're coming across like it's true. Well, you know, that's the sort of opposition we're up against in the work of the gospel. Men's hardness against God and and the, the message of the Lord Jesus Christ. Surely, how can anybody have victory over that sort of situation? We can do because of the covenant plan of God. It's an assurance to Christ. In fact, in the verse before this, you'll notice the Lord Jesus was uh, uh, saddened by the rejection of the very people he had fed with the loaves and the fishes. In verse 36, he said, but as I told you, you have seen me and still you do not believe. You know, the old saying is seeing is believing. And these people saw Christ. They knew him from the town of Nazareth where he grew up. But even though they saw him and saw his power, they still didn't believe in him. Was Christ discouraged? Not at all. He had that assurance that all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. And I want to say this is an encouragement as well in terms of seeing people saved. Because you know what? Many people are very stubborn and hardened and resistant against the gospel, aren't they? I've been uh, reading some books of testimonies and uh, and lots of old books of testimonies and seeing the the works of God's grace in in different people. I came across one by a man called Lincoln Nye, N-I-E-H. And he was from China. And he was in uh, uh, the days when the Chinese uh, Communist Party was rising to power and, uh, or, or, or rising in prominence in China. And he had actually had many Christian privileges as he was growing up. But he had spurned the, the gospel he had heard. And after the communists briefly were put down, 
uh, he actually fled for safety to some Christians. And out of all his gang who he was involved in, and he was uh, part of the propaganda, part of the communist movement at that time, he was the only one who survived. And he ended up being taken to a Christian meeting where the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ was being preached. And he says this about his own experience. I was born again at four o'clock on July the 7th, 1929, in the Church of Bethel Mission. It was the time of the third annual summer Bible conference. I hadn't wanted to attend, but a friend registered for me so I couldn't get out of it. During the first few days, although I was moved, I hardened my heart, for I was unwilling to repent and confess my sins. Everyone knew me, And I was afraid of ridicule. On the fourth day, although every word knocked at the door of my heart, I kept it closed until the very last importunate plea was given. Although I knew the call was for me, I still refused to respond. He's talking about when the the gospel was given and the message preached, he felt God speaking to his heart. When the whole assembly knelt in prayer, I trembled all over, realizing the depths of my sin. Just then, the Lord Jesus, who knows all hearts, sent a missionary to help me pray. I seemed to be before the judgment seat. I was as confused as a, a man in a drunken dream, not knowing which way to turn. I could only cry aloud in bitter hatred of my sin. The missionary prayed for me most earnestly. This went on for more than an hour. Praise the Lord, he giveth power to the weary and strength to the weak. In my despair, I realized that the Lord had forgiven me all my sin, washed me clean in his precious blood, and regenerated me. It was only from this time that I had a real connection with the Lord. I now loved his word and was baptized and entered the church. My heart was full of joy. (laughs) <laughs> you think what a what a mighty conquest somebody who's a, a part of the communist movement who's hardening himself to the very last thing as resisting the gospel as it's given while he's sitting there in church and Christ says come and the power of God overcomes the hardened dead heart of that sinner and he has to come and I want to say maybe there's someone here today You've been hardening your heart against the Lord Jesus. I have no confidence you're going to be able to hold out against him. All that the Father has given me will come to me. You will come. You'll come. So why not come now? Come. You know the word come, C-O-M-E, children, old people, middle-aged people, everybody. Come. Come to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he will never drive you away. Christ's assurance that he received from the Father is his assurance to you as well. Second thing I want you to see here is Christ's agreement in this covenant of grace in verse 38 and verse 39. Because here he says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Excuse me. Verse 39, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of all that he has given me, but raise him up at the last day. Now, one of the things the uh, theologians love to talk about is something called the economic trinity. 
Now, it's got nothing to do with shopping or budget deals or anything like that. But the economic trinity is a phrase that Christian thinkers like to use for the roles of each member of the Godhead. The Father has a role, the Son has a role, the Spirit has a role, and each one does their own part. And uh, Christ's part in the economic trinity is to do the will of his Father. And this is something he says many times over in the Gospel of John. And uh, in this chapter especially, he says, I've come to do the will of him who sent me in verse 39. By the way, do you realize in that verse there you have proof that Jesus is God? Because anybody else, when they're born, they're becoming, they're, they're beginning, their life is beginning. But when Christ came into the world, he was becoming man. There's a difference. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. He came from heaven and uh, he came expressly to do what the father wanted him to do. And God had a plan for Christ to save his people that Christ willingly was uh, pleased to do. And that plan was to save his people, to keep his people and to raise up his people at the last day. And this is what Christ's agreement was, as we see here in these verses. In verse 38, he says about the saving part here, which is in basically in the phrase, to do the will of him who sent me. Do you know when the Lord Jesus uh, was on the cross, he said those mighty words, it is finished. He didn't say, I am finished. He said, it is finished. Well, you say, what is the it? It's the work of saving. And this is what God sent him to do. This was the will of God that the Lord Jesus would come to save sinners. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 15. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Of whom I am chief, says Paul. He came to save. And we need to be saved. And that's why the Lord Jesus came and died on the cross. Our sins are an offence to God. And they're a barrier between us and a holy God. They stop us going to heaven. The swearing, the lying, the stealing, the looking with the eyes, the things in our heart, the hatred, the stabbing in the back. All those things are sins and they mount up like a wall between us and God. And they need to be removed so God can let us into heaven. That's why the Lord Jesus came and died on the cross to do the will of his father. And there's no other way to be saved but through the Lord Jesus saving work. One of the testimonies I I, I read recently was of a man by the name of Douglas Wisco and his wife Barbara. And Douglas was a a man in 1970 who was uh, searching for truth. And wanting to know the meaning of life. And uh, one, one day in 1970, guarantee it was when you're having a meal, there was a knock on the door. And who was there but the Jehovah's Witnesses. And he and his wife heard everything they wanted to hear. And they joined the Jehovah's Witnesses. But there was one nagging thing. How does he get forgiven? How does he get saved? His own words, he says this, To gain eternal life, I was told certain things were necessary. Number one, I should study the Bible diligently and only through the Watchtower publications. That's the Jehovah's Witness organization. Number two, I should attend all five meetings each week. Number three, I should devote as many hours as possible to the ministry work. That's the door knocking. 
Number four, I should associate only with other Jehovah's Witnesses. Number five, I should be baptized. All of these things and more must accompany faith because according uh, because earning the reward of eternal life requires hard work, says the Watchtower magazine, August 15th, 1972. That's what he was told. But he knew he never had it. And he kept wanting to be saved. And he never did. Well, thank God the Lord, through his family, sent uh, somebody who knew the gospel and uh, sent some Christians who knew about the Jehovah's Witnesses and were able to show them the truth uh, of the Jehovah's Witnesses and then show them the truth of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. That if he trusted in Christ, he wouldn't have to do the work to be saved. It would be done for him by the Lord Jesus. He came to do the will of the Father. And in his testimony, he says this, on Thursday, October the 18th, 1973, I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Saviour and was saved. (laughs) He wasn't saved all that trying before. But when he trusted in Christ and the finished work of Christ, I was saved. Jesus came to do it all. He's done it all for you. There's nothing more for you to do. So trust in Christ and receive salvation as a gift. As you put your faith in what he did on the cross for you. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. But Christ's work was not only to save, it was also to keep. Because you look in the next part of the verse, in verse 39, he said, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me. Christ not only saves, but he keeps all who has been given to him. And uh, sometimes uh, we worry about people losing their salvation i want to tell you if they're really saved they can't lose it because if they if they weren't those who were given by god the father they didn't have it in the first place or if they never came properly they weren't saved in the first place because all that those who the father has given him will be kept he shall lose none of all that he has given me. And the Greek there is a, 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 a reflection on the Greek earlier on. Where he said about all will come to me. And it's a whole company. And none here is the Greek reflection. Which is not a single one of that whole great number. Mm. Isn't that wonderful? The Lord will keep those he say, he, he's been given from the Father. I was thinking about an Old Testament story of Elisha and the floating axe head. Do you remember that? And and in that great story, what happened was that uh, uh, Elisha and his students went down to the River Jordan to cut down some trees to make a new place for the people to be able to worship. And one of them had got an axe head he had borrowed and he was chopping down trees and the axe head came off and fell in the River Jordan. And Elisha prayed and God made, threw a stick in and God made the axe head rise up. It wasn't lost. Wasn't lost. What he had been given wasn't lost. It was restored carefully. And in this miracle that Jesus has just done, he told the disciples, gather up all the fragments in verse 12 so that nothing is lost. It's a picture of the same thing. Christ is not going to lose a single one that belongs to him. And I find tremendous assurance in that. 
Because you know what? Even though I'm a Christian, even though I'm saved, I'm still a pretty bad sinner. And so are you. So are you. We still find sinning our second nature, don't we? And it's so easy to feel condemned and guilty because of what we've done wrong. And we should feel ashamed and we should ask the Lord to forgive us. But we shouldn't worry that we've lost our salvation because he will lose none of all that he has given me. Reminded of the story of a little girl who was talking to her grandfather about this. And he said, well, what if you lose your salvation? And she said, listen, she said, I'm a part of the body of Christ. Do you think Jesus has lost his little finger? <laughs> she saw herself as the little finger in the body of Christ. Jesus hasn't lost his little finger. He hasn't lost a, a, a single one. And they are kept. Uh, but no, not only kept, they're also going to be raised. And this is a beautiful part in verse 39. But we'll raise them up at the last day. See, Christ not only saves our spirits, our souls, he saves our bodies too. Did you know that? It's not just soul salvation, it's whole salvation. Jesus died to redeem all of you. Romans 8 talks about the redemption of the body. And when Jesus comes again, he's going to raise the dead. They will be raised in their resurrection form and will be taken back to heaven. And not a single one will be lost on that last day. What a comfort that is. And Cetus, who writes for our daily bread, said these words. She said, the morning after my mother died, I was reading the Bible and talking to the Lord about my sadness. The Bible reading for that day was John chapter 6. When I came to verse 39, the Lord whispered comfort to my sad heart. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. Mum's spirit was with the Lord already, but I knew that one day she would be raised and given a new body. As I continued reading, I noticed three other times in John 6 that Jesus said he will raise his people from the dead at the last day. He was repeating this truth to those who were listening long ago as well as to my heart that day. What comfort we can find in Christ's agreement and he will fulfill the plan that God gave him to do to the very end. You know, again, we see a picture of this in Noah. Noah was the one God made a covenant with. Noah built the ark for the saving of his family. And then we see God brought the animals to Noah, didn't he? Like sinners coming to Jesus. Noah didn't have to go around lassoing all the animals and catching them with a net. God brought them to Noah. That's, that's irresistible grace. And all that the Father gives me will come to me. And it says about Noah, he did everything that God wanted him to do in the building of the ark. And like Christ, that's a picture of Christ who will finish his work to the end. And we will be saved by him alone. So wonderful. What a mighty work of salvation Jesus has provided for those who trust in him. And then the final thing we see here is the appeal he makes in verse 40. He says, For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last days. 
In the last verse, the Lord Jesus, having explained his assurance to the crowds who were there, who had had the feeding of the 5,000, yet had rejected him. He had not only explained his agreement to do these mighty things, but then he gave an appeal to them to come and believe on him. And he said, my father's will is that everyone who looks to the son and believes in him shall have eternal life. That everyone was a a, a door wide open to any sinner to come to him. You say, John, what do they have to do? Well, Jesus said it very clearly. Look to the son and believe in him. That's how we get saved. We look to the Lord Jesus Christ. If you remember the Bible story of the bronze serpent lifted up, the children of Israel had to look to the bronze serpent to be saved from the snake bites in the camp of Israel, Numbers 21. And the Lord Jesus used that in John chapter 3. In the same way, we look to the Lord Jesus Christ and put our trust in him, what he did on the cross to save us. It doesn't mean we look physically at a picture of Jesus on a wall But we look with our hearts. The Greek word means to contemplate, to consider Christ and to to believe in what we see of Christ. To look and believe. And you know, there's no work in looking, is there? You're not sweating right now as you're looking at me. Because there's no work. Looking is workless. But it requires faith. And looking to Jesus is all we have to do to get to heaven. Looked at what he did on the cross to save us. And if we look and believe, his word is we shall have eternal life. And he will raise us up at the last days. If somebody said the message of Christianity is not shut your eyes and pretend, but open your eyes and see. I want to say that this morning. It is. And I want to ask you that very simple thing. Are you looking to the Lord Jesus Christ today to save you? One day you're going to stand before almighty God. You're going to have to account for all the things you've done. The only way you're going to get into heaven is if you're looking to the Lord Jesus Christ to be your saviour. In that case, your sins will be washed away. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You'll be saved. Otherwise, you'll have to account for them and pay the price for them yourself. What an offer is given to us. Look and believe. The hymn writer said there's life for a look at the crucified one. Then look, sinner, look and be saved. And I appeal to you today. Christ has done his part in the covenant of grace so that you can be saved. And he appeals to you to look at him and believe. May God Draw even today those who are in that number he has given to the Son to come to him and not be turned away. We're going to sing our.